0: and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Your words are true, always and ever true. And We thank You that You are a speaking God. And we pray that You would speak to us and by Your Holy Spirit, impress Your words into our hearts and lives that we might see Christ, love Him and submit to Him, glorify Him and enjoy Him. Father, we pray for Your people that You would speak in the heart of each one and the heart of our church together what You would have for us to know You, to see Christ where He is and us where we ought to be as His church. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're newer with us, we've been in it. We're kind of in a year where we're, we're not kind of, we're in a year where we're working through a lot of what the Bible teaches about the church, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and I can't really repeat them all this morning, but that's just where we are. And... Um, Last week we really dealt with who is is the church, and the church is all of those redeemed by the blood of Christ. And um, this morning the question's slightly different, which is whose is the church? And so to all of the redeemed, who do we belong to in this thing called the church? And the obvious answer, of course, is the church belongs to Jesus, right? There's an obvious answer to the question. It's from Him, through Him, and to Him. The church of Jesus Christ. It is His and His alone. But, I think the thing about it that's really important for us to wrestle with is you have to understand that as one of God's redeemed, that the enemy throws fiery dart after fiery dart after fiery dart after fiery dart dart against his church. And I don't know, did your mom ever say this to you? Did your mom ever say to you, you'd lose your head if it wasn't attached to your neck. You say that to your kids now? And the point is, you know, you're... You're five minutes away from having to leave for school in the morning and you've got your sandwich ready and you need to put it in your lunchbox and your lunchbox, you know, disappeared like uh, low interest rates and low inflation. <laughs> and you can't find it all of a sudden, but you've got to get out the door and there's this big rush and, you know, this has happened for the fourth time this week and so, you know. Mama says, you'd lose your head if it wasn't attached to your neck. And so the reality is as though the church belongs to Jesus and he is its head. And there's probably not uh, many people in this room who don't understand that in theory. You know, we understand that this is what the Bible teaches. We are the body and Jesus is the head of the church. We understand that at least conceptually. The truth of the matter is... And you've heard me say this, it is really easy to lose track of the head. It's really easy to lose track of the head. Every single, well, it's really easy to lose track of the head. And what I hope this message does is exalts Christ as head of the church and helps us find our place under Him lest we lose sight of Him as our head. Certainly, there are a lot of attempts to usurp the head of the church. Office bearers in the church are not the head of the church. But it is... Awfully easy for office bearers, the elders, the pastors, the deacons, to usurp Christ as the head of the church and lead the church in their own way, according to their own words and according to their own plans and visions. Right? And this we see this everywhere across our land, and every compromise made and every detraction from the Word of God. And that these offices are gifts of God to His church under the head. 1 Peter 5.2 Shepherd the flock of God that is among you as God would have you is the responsibility of my work and Esteban and Joel's work and Carl and Chris's work and Dave and Ben's work. As God would have you Not the officers. They're not the head of the church. Not the members. Not the members and not any particular member is the head of the church. I mean, the amount of strife, many of you have probably sat in meetings that were full of endless unnecessary strife. And church has strife in it. If you read any page of the Bible, One of the things that you will hear people say is, "I'm going to get sinned against everywhere. I expect to get sinned against at work. I expect to get uh, to get sinned against. Um, you know, everywhere I go, the one place that I do not expect to get sinned against is in the church." And the only response I want to say to that is similar to what. Jesus said to the Pharisees when he said, have you never read the scriptures? But I would, I kind of don't want to just say that. I kind of want to say, have you never read a single page of the scriptures? A single page. It's hard to read a a page of scripture without imagining in the church of Jesus Christ being sinned against. And, and, and one of the things, ways this happens is when any member of the church or the church itself determines a direction or a course of action and demands it apart from the head who is Jesus Christ and seeks to ascend to be the head of the church. Church will be my way. And no member is the head of the church. And the members together, and what they decide together, are not the head of the church. We are members, Ephesians chapter 2, of the household of God. But no member is the head of the church. And so much strife exists when a member loses sight of the rule and reign of Christ as head of His church. Not the office bearers, not the members, and then... Sometimes we're deceived by this. We think that the state, we think that the state is the head of the church. And we think that in part because of our First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now let me open a can and not close it this morning. In the writing of the First Amendment. I think you can read it like this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of Christian religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof of Christian religion. I know, I just blew your minds. But I'm just going to let that sit on you. But what we tend to think is... What we tend to think is that because we have the free exercise of religion in the United States, that that's actually the state giving the church an authority. And it's not the state giving the church an authority because the state is not the church's head. What the First Amendment is doing is recognizing that the church of Jesus Christ has a head, and it's not us, and permitting the church to worship the head of the church, Jesus Christ, not because they've conferred any authority on us whatsoever as our head. They've recognized that Christ is head of the church. So it's not the state. Jesus said, I will build my church Let's be very careful not to think that we exist because of the power of the state in the United States. Certainly not the world. You know, and I feel like I never stop talking about how, even though I don't always use it in these terms, the church makes the world its head. And the world commands the church. And so this is why you hear me endlessly talk about the church just becoming like the world and the endless compromises and concessions the church makes. Every time the world applies any pressure, the church, just like a bunch of cowards, just kind of falls over and dies. Okay. That's what you say. Okay. Okay. And in effect, what we're saying is the world and the world system is the head of the church and we will submit to its command. And when we get into this passage in Ephesians, we just it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine how you could justify all of the ways in which the church seeks to submit to the world when Christ reigns over it all. I feel like I have to just say also not the Pope. Not the Pope. In Roman Catholicism, well, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me just read it. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. And then they get more aggressive Positively in statements about the Pope. This is how Christians have always understood. um, But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? Yet in Rome, the Pope is the head of the church. It's not the Pope. In Ephesians chapter 1, as you pick up the, well, in verse 22, Jesus is not said to be head over the church exactly. What is he said to be when you look at it? What does it say? It's, he's said to be head over all things. He is head over the church because He's exalted to be head over all things. And as head over all things, God the Father gives Jesus to the church and for the church. Now, in Colossians 1.18, it's stated a little bit more clearly. and He is the head of the body, the church. But it's not just that Jesus' authority is delegated to just be head of the church. Jesus' authority is far greater than to just be head of the church. That's why I do love what Ephesians 1.22 says. has head over all things. And then He's given to the church. His authority extends above and beyond all things. And this really matters, and we'll get to it in a moment. But I want to step back for a second in the context of verses 22 and 23 in particular. And I want us to just think about this. I want us to think about what is God saying to us about Christ as head of the church? Now, if you're, following the, if you're following the argument of what we read, the Apostle Paul is giving thanks for the believers in Ephesus. He's giving thanks for their faith. But there's some things he's praying for them. And he wants their eyes to be opened. You know, like... The way you have your eyes opened upon conversion to start seeing the world through the lens of the Word of God. He wants their eyes enlightened to see and know God as He is. He's praying for them to have hope. This glorious inheritance in the saints. He's praying for them to have hope. And He wants them to know the power of God that is exercised on their behalf. And... It's hard to get your mind around sometimes uh, what, what is the power of God that's been exercised toward those who believe, but that's what He wants you to know. Well, I heard, I heard one pastor say one time, and it was helpful to me, that the power of God towards one person, one sinner who repents, one converted soul, is more power than it takes to create worlds. But that statement doesn't even do justice to the power of God that's worked on our behalf. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to describe now. He's going to describe what is the power that has been exercised towards you who believe. You see, if you're following, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. See, here he's describing that power. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. All right, so when He raised Him from the dead, speaking not just of the fact that Jesus' heart was not beating, and His lungs weren't breathing, and God brought His heart and lungs back to life. it's, 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 it's That is true. He raised Him from the dead, but... The power is that He raised Him from the dead in the completion of the work of what was required for our redemption. For sin to be paid for. For us to be justified. Now, He raised Him. So there's the resurrection. And then when we're thinking about Christ, we think about His resurrection and we think about His exaltation. And so both are here. When He raised Him from the dead, and also God's power to exalt Christ, to where He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He seated Him, the Father seated Him with Him at His right hand. You know, To be seated at the right hand would be to... Um, not, it's not just that He's seating Him in a seat of honor. Though all honor would be due our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that He's seating Him in a, at a place of honor, like just merely at a banquet table or something. When He's seating Him at His right hand, it would be um, something like an authority of the shared throne of God. It's, a, it's authority. Jesus being seated at his right hand is, is authority. You know, in kind of a basic way, we would understand um, maybe in the business world um, when someone has a hire and they've been working with them for a while and they, you know, they have their right hand man and they count on them to exercise authority and make decisions and carry out the work of you know, the owner. And so what it's speaking of Christ here in His exaltation is that He is exalted to a place of authority even sharing the throne of God the Father. And it's in the heavenly places, in the unseen realm where God manifestly dwells. And then the Apostle tells us truths that we often gloss over. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but I want you to know something of what's said here. Because it will help you see the glory of Christ and entrust yourself to Jesus as the head of the church. Okay? Seated in the heavenly places, in the unseen realm, and then it says far above or high above. And he uses these terms and he piles them up. All rule and authority. Do you see it in your Bible? In power and dominion, you know, and then and then, as if to say, I can't keep naming everything that could be named. He just says, and above every name that is named, anything in all creation, he Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all of everything. Now, what is he speaking of when he says rule and authority and power and dominion? He's not just talking about kings. He's not just talking about the princes of the Earth. He's not talking about senates and parliaments, and he's not talking about, you know, great men of renown. He's talking about divine beings, angels with evil intent and power who rule the earth. In Ephesians, the book of Ephesians unfolds more of this than any other New Testament book. For example, um, chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We'll come back to that later. And then you jump over to chapter 6 and you're still thinking, who are these beings? Who does the Apostle Paul have in mind to teach us about Christ's exaltation over them? You go to chapter 6. Verse 11, "...put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." Verse 12, "...for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, against the authorities." against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapter 1. The rule and authority. The different names of angels in rebellion against God, ruling over the nations. Christ has taken His seat of authority far above them. High above them. These rebellious divine beings who long held the nations in blindness to the gospel. The Bible uses the term. The Bible uses the term for these beings, um, sometimes uses the term gods, little g. They're gods. They're divine beings. They're not sharing the nature of God. God Himself, they are created beings in the heavenly realm full of great power. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. He, God, is to be feared above all gods. What is it talking about? He is to be feared above all gods. For the... For all the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, you know, in materialistic Western culture, when we hear little g, gods, we just think of just, just idol statues that are just gold or silver, or, you know, if you're poor, you make one out of wood. He was impoverished for such an offering <laughs> makes his idol out of wood that does not rot. Isaiah chapter 40. And we just think about little idols, but you, ha- you see you're already missing the whole point of the exalted Christ here when you do that. That's not how Scripture talks about them. It talks about their being gods, divine beings, who have rule. They have actual rule. They actually have authority. And there's seemingly a level of hierarchy in their operation, the devil being at the top. They have dominion and power that they exercise over the earth. So, there's something behind You know, all the little statues as we think of them, there's power behind them that the nations bow down to and worship. And so, what you have then in the work of Christ is the crushing of Satan's skull and him being exalted to rule over the nations sharing the Father's throne, being conferred upon with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me to rule far above all of these evil powers and gods and divine beings in the heavenly places in the unseen realm. So, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world, right? Scripture uses that term, even of Satan. Little g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? And one of the things you have to understand is this was the nations being held blind and captive for... Thousands of years to not be able to see Christ. Unlike Israel, who God revealed the promise of his son to, who was his treasured possession, and yet you don't see the advance of Christ's kingdom all over the earth because the God of this world has blinded their minds for hundreds of years, thousands of years. From the beginning, after the fall, right, and the rebellion. And one of the things we don't realize is that actually something drastically changed in the nature of the world in the work of Christ. We think that Satan, as he always was, is as he will always be. And we don't even realize that something drastically different changed in the nature of the world through the work of Christ. You know that the promise of the Messiah was to crush the head of the serpent. But what we don't realize is He actually crushed the head of the serpent. Something changed. The evidence of it is that the nations are not all blind to the Gospel any longer. The Gospel advanced from Israel into the ends of the earth. And the reason is because of Christ's triumph over these these rulers and powers and authorities. It's what Colossians chapter 2 says. When you read verses of the Bible like this, they don't make sense to us because we don't think like this. In chapter 2, verse 15, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. All of these gods and all of these powers. Christ, who ruled the world and hold it in blindness, Christ triumphed over them. In the context of that, by having canceled the record of death that stood against us. So... Satan is an enemy. And the evil powers are real enemies. They are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But they are defeated enemies. They are defeated enemies. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. And then verse 22, and He put all things under His feet. All of these rules and powers are actually subject to Christ sitting on the throne. They're subject to Him. And they're not just subject to Him, they're put to open shame. And by us gathering on Sunday, you understand, when we gather and we worship Christ, and we live as the church of Jesus Christ, we actually are a witness to these rulers and authorities and powers and dominion that they have lost and though they tempted, though Satan tempted Adam into the fall and though they had a tremendous amount of power and rule over the earth and they blinded the minds of the unbelieving and all the nations for a long time, that the manifold wisdom of God was that He could redeem a people like that and triumph over them. Even though they led humanity into sin in the garden. That's what Ephesians 3.10 is saying. So that through the church, this glorious purpose of God that we all enjoy, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that God's purpose was to make a people for himself, and though they would rebel against him, it was foolish because he would triumph over them regardless. One commentator said this, and I found it helpful. The resurrection proclaims he lives, and that forever. The exaltation proclaims he reigns, and that forever. And so, what does God do with the exaltation of Christ over every spiritual force of wickedness in the heavenly places? What does He do with this exalted Christ? And He gave Him and gave Him, Christ, the exalted Christ, as head over all things to the church. To the church. which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So you understand what this means. Everything about this, the exaltation of Christ is to teach us that the one who's head over all things, not just over wimpy men, not just head over President Biden, not just head over Vladimir Putin, head over all the wicked and powerful powers that stand behind fueling evil everywhere holding the world captive in sin and enslavement over far more powerful beings in the heavenly places than just men who are dust, who can only be awake for 12 to 14 hours and then have to sleep for 8 just to survive. Christ exalted over them, far above them, being both created And then trampled on by the blood of His cross to make a people He delivers from the dominion of darkness. Everything He does from His place of authority and rule as head of the church is for the benefit of His church. Everything Jesus Christ does with the authority He has Is for the benefit of his church in this world. Everything. Now, I know we hear that, and what we think is, we hear that, and we think something like, why is church so hard? Why is spiritual growth so hard? Why is fighting my sin so hard? If Jesus really was exalted to this high place for the benefit of His church, then it's because it's not all done yet. It's not all done yet. But Jesus uses all that's hard in the church for the benefit of his church, too. One of the most helpful things that was said to me that I now teach to my kids is, heart isn't bad, it's just heart. Heart isn't bad, it's just heart. Jesus, from his place of authority, uses a lot of heart. Sometimes hard is bad because we sin against each other in significant ways. And Christ wants to use it and rule over his church as head for the benefit of his church. If he could triumph over actual divine evil beings, don't you think he can triumph over your sin and redeem it and use it for something of benefit in your heart and life and in the life of the whole church? Of course, in Ephesians, he has some bigger things in mind, you know. Where does the new spiritual life come from in Christ church? I was helped by a chapter by James Bannerman on thinking through some of this. Where does the new spiritual life come from in Christ church? It comes from the head of the church. Where do the ordinances come from to give us spiritual blessing? The head of the church. Where do we learn the doctrine of the church? From the head of the church, teaching us by his word and by his spirit and by his all wisdom? Where do we learn about the authority of the church? You know how the church is to make decisions and what part does Christ have in them? We learn from the head of the church. Where does divine sanctifying grace that changes our lives come from? It comes from the head of the church. I mean, the benefits that God gives to his church, namely fellowship with himself in Ephesians, right? Fellowship with himself, which is his body, the fellowship of the body with the head, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just a remarkable statement that I can't get into the details of because it's very challenging. but a fellowship and sharing of Christ with His body, the head with the body. Fellowship with Himself. We are members of the household of God. In 219 and 312, we, are, we have boldness and access with confidence. We have fellowship with Himself. Christ exalted as head of the church. Number one benefit, fellowship with Himself. In Ephesians 2, 1-10, through 10, we studied that last week. We have salvation by grace through faith. We have hope for a new creation to come where God's going to show us immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. We have fellowship with one another. You know... Don't you just look at people who don't have what the church is and don't have the relationships and life together in the life of Jesus' church and just think, how in the world do they actually make it? I don't know how they make it. If I didn't have the life together that we have here and the strength that comes from it and the help that comes from it and the support that comes from it and the guidance that comes from it and the counsel that comes from it, roll over and die <laughs> just and you realize everyone is alone everyone everywhere is alone just think when they go to try to move you know they're alone you know when someone here goes to try to move it's like a it's like the national guard got deployed to defend a sovereign nation or something and i love that you know and when someone's when someone is ensnared in their sins when someone's ensnared in their sins There are all kinds of people in this church who are ready to be a help and support and to pray and to care and to help in the process of rescuing and freeing and building and maturing and equipping and repenting and everything. It's the benefit of Christ's rule as head of the church Everything He does from His position of authority is for the benefit of His church. Everything. I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or in Ephesians, right, the rest of the book, we need truth that guides and sanctifies and protects. We need, we need wisdom for marriage. From His position of authority, He has given words To command us and direct what marriage is and what parenting is, what authority is. Apart from him telling us, who would figure it out? Who would figure it out? Not me. Not me and strength to stand against the evil one in chapter 6, right? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so to love, it's so important. I think I'm going to deal with this next week because I think I just need to deal with it. I preached a few messages years ago. Called Why I Love the Church, and you should too. And it's rooted in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And your love of the church is love to Christ, the head of the body. And one of the things you have to do is you have to love the church more than the health of the church. If you only hold to an expectation that everything is supposed to be health in the church and no one's supposed to sin against you, and I mean, oh, goodness. You have to love the church more than its health. I just don't know if some of us could have gone to the church in Corinth. I'm not sure many of us could endure in the church in Ephesus, which we all think was a a beacon of the fullness of Christian maturity, to which we all think we are. I mean, Ephesus turned into a nightmare by the time The Apostle Paul hands over the reins to Timothy to reform the mess in the book of 1 Timothy. I'm not sure we think we could even go to the church in Ephesus. And I don't know what to tell you about it. But you have to love the church more than its health. I mean, in your marriage, what happens if, you know, men, what happens if your wife is really unlovable in her sin? You must love her right then. You must. You don't get a pass. To neglect your job. And so it's the same with the church. You must love the church more than its health. And then I just want to encourage you. Don't give up on the church. Every church is a mix of purity and sin. Every church is a mix in varying amounts of purity and godliness and various amounts of godlessness and unholiness. Every single last one. And it must be this way until Christ comes and we are glorified. And I just want to encourage you don't give up on the church. Don't give up on her. Giving up on her is rebelling against the one who is her head. Jesus knows as the head very well well the nature of this church. He knows better than I do, and he knows better than all of our elders know, and he knows better than you know. And he hasn't cleaned it all up yet and sterilized us. And if he hasn't given up on his church and he's forever maturing her by the power of his sanctifying grace, then don't give up on the church ever because it is to walk away from and rebel against the Christ who is the head. The church does not belong to you to make it what you think it has to be for you to like it. Jesus is the head of the church. And we must heed him being the head of the church. Less like the child, not paying attention, we lose track of our head. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, I know in all of our experiences of the life of the church, there is much blessing and there is much pain. There is much that is confusing to us and disillusioning to us, but let us hold fast, Father, to our Lord Jesus, the head of the church let us hold fast to our head and submit to Him who is exalted to the highest place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And may we give thanks to You, Lord Jesus, that You're ever and always working for the benefit of Your church. May our hearts give thanks to You. May we give thanks to You always and every day and even when it's painful and maybe even more so, that your authority is for the benefit of our salvation. And may we always submit to your rule and reign and to your crown. In your name we pray. Amen.